Coming to you from the City of Angels, this is The Daily Saint, and here's your host, Michaela Conley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Daily Saint Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Andrew Zimmern. Andrew is a four-time James Beard award-winning TV personality, chef, writer, teacher, and social justice advocate. He was the creator and host of Travel Channel's Bizarre Foods franchise and his newest series, What's Eating America, on MSNBC explores through the lens of food some of the most pressing social and political issues in the United States today. So Andrew, thank you very much for joining me today. I'd like to begin each episode asking guests to tell me about a time when they were on the receiving end of a memorable act of kindness. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty easy. Um, at, at least for me, it's just a poignant turning point in my life that had a profound impact on me. And there's, I don't think a day goes by. I don't think about it. Um, so I've been very public about the fact that I'm 28 plus years sober. Uh, and when I first sobered up, I had been homeless in New York. I had been a thief and a vagrant. Um, I was, I had been avoided by people. I mean, I hadn't showered in, in 11 months when I was squatting a building on Sullivan Street in Lower Manhattan. And I was, uh, by definition, self-definition, unlovable, hopeless, um, irredeemable. I was physically sick and filthy. And I had that, that, uh, that look in my eye that very naturally people avoided me uh, wherever I was. Um, and, you know, even at the, you know, the, the last two or three years of my social drinking, which preceded that awful time in my life, um, I, I, you know, I, people had given up on me and I, I drank alone in corners and all the rest of that. So I had a, at least a three or four year history, um, of not only, uh, just complete destruction of self-esteem. But physically, I, I had become a user of people and a taker of things and had been, uh, you know, it was a petty criminal. You just, people avoid you. And I was mm-hmm. physically, physically disgusting. Um, so I get to Minnesota um, via intervention. I'm in a hospital unit at a treatment center for five or six days. I have 28 days then after that at the treatment center. Um, and so I guess it was like sobriety day 34, maybe 35. Um, I'm at the halfway house in, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And, uh, you're, you're required to go to a a 12 step meeting every day. And, you know, you're as a newcomer there, you're not allowed to have a car. You're not allowed to leave without other people, et cetera. So you ask for help and ask people to give you a lift. And a bunch of guys were going up to a meeting up the street, um, at a, a house that, uh, had meetings going on around the clock. And I, we all hopped in the car, went up there for whatever, seven o'clock meeting. 
And it was snowy. It was cold. It was uh, first week in March in Minnesota. There was, uh, it, it had been a horrifically cold winter. And uh, we got out of the car and we walked and there was a, the, the house was set back about 100 150 feet from the street and there was a very narrow path that had been shoveled there was snow a foot of it on either side of the path still and standing in the path about 10 feet in front of the house so far down from where we would start walking down it uh was a stunningly uh elegant woman i would guess in her 60s in a wool skirt suit uh, and uh, sensible heels and a small fur coat on and a hat and gloves. And you could just see she was just extremely well put together and just very sort of, I don't know, grandma chic for wintertime. And she just <laughs> ra radiated warmth and love. And I walked down as I got closer she was sort of standing in the middle of the, of the sidewalk. And I made a move to step onto the snow to walk around her. And that was because, number one, I, I was afraid of human interaction. Um, it was an esteem issue. That was a mental health issue for me at that time. And I also had it in my head that I still looked repulsive, even though I was showered and cleaned. I felt I was, I felt so less than. I mm -hmm. felt so, I was just still, still in my bottom in a sense, even though I was dry. I certainly wasn't sober at that point. And as I started to veer to the left uh, to walk around her, she leaned to her right to intercept me and pulled me back onto the path and gave me a hug mm. and then moved on to the next person to give them a hug. And um, it's sorry, it's just, it's hard to oh, talk about okay. without getting um, a little emotional. Um, I didn't realize until she gave me the hug that she was the greeter for the meeting. That she was there to give everybody a hug and make sure that they got inside to the meeting. And, you know, that was her service work position. You know, at 12-step meetings, people set up chairs, people break down chairs, people make coffee, people are the greeter, people read various things in the meeting, people are responsible for going up to newcomers and giving them lists to make sure that they are aware of long-term sobriety folks in the room who are willing to be sponsors. Um, that's just how it works. Um, but I had not received a hug from anyone. I, I, I'm guessing two or three years. Wow. Um, that was, it was one of my consequences in life. I mean, when you fall so far, below the 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 safety net when you are avoidant of other people when you are doing the things that i'm doing you know you don't you don't get in contact with people who hug mm -hmm. um very often um 
and she gave me she gave me a hug and I mean I've I, I literally I can smell her as I'm talking about it I can smell the perfume that she was wearing I can smell the feel of the softness of her sort of fur I don't know shawl and the wool underneath it I can just I can remember everything about that woman I never saw her again really ever wow um and despite going back to that meeting a lot, right, rest, right. you know, just, I never saw her again. Mm-hmm. Um, but she got me from point C to point F. I mean, mm-hmm. she skipped me right past D and E. She sparked something inside of me and gave me an inspiration for service that once I was plugged in to the recovery world and I kept thinking about how valuable, you know, there's that, there's something that I try to tell my son at least once a week, which is, you know, when somebody needs help, be kind and offer it because you might be the only person who's doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't know. Um, It's like the guy who's on the beach throwing with thousands of starfish washed up and he's throwing them back. And some guy gets out of his car and screams down from the parking lot. Hey, you're not going to be able to, you know, save all the starfish and the guy screams back, well, it matters to this one as he's Mm. throwing it back in the water. Um, All of those sort of Hallmark greeting card admonitions about ways in which to treat other people with love and kindness and respect is so valuable because you never know whose life you're saving. Mm-hmm. The hug that you're giving to someone today could be the the guy that or the woman who needs it, and ten years from now they develop the cure for an illness that saves your your kid. I mean, you just mm-hmm. you just don't know. And I, I the world works in mysterious ways. I do know that she sprinkled me with enough dignity and respect, she told me, you are valued, you are huggable, you are worth something, you are a fellow human being. I had felt none of those things for years. She sparked that inside of me, and a a day, there's not a day that goes by I don't think of her, and it's informed my life and my work uh, now for 28 years. I mean, without, without her, I'm not sure I stay sober. Mm-hmm. And it taught me a lesson that I still think about and utilize every single uh, day. I'm, I, I mean, look, I like, I'm a human being. I break out into instant asshole if you add water. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm no saint. But the fact of the matter is, is that respect and dignity is the most powerful drug that human beings possess. We have to give it away in order to keep it. It's what restores other human beings um, and is the, ba- the the greatest and most powerful tool for social change I've ever found. Mm-hmm. So we try to bake that. Uh, we talk about it a lot in our office and we try to bake it into everything that we do. And I bake it into my my regular life every single every single day. With Bizarre Foods, I mean, you kind of touched on this, but what... What was the conversation every day? Because that really could have gone like, here's some entertaining shock value if it was a different show and a different yeah. person. Yeah. So how did it, how, what was the conversation, you know, 
in the room and in with your production team to be like, okay, we want to eat this crazy thing and it's going to be weird and might not taste very good, but how are we going to make this a broader conversation about tolerance or patience like you were talking about? Well, it, it, that was never, that never came up in the room with the production company. That's, that's the, um, that's the editing that exists in the field with what the talent chooses to do. So we went and we made a pilot. Uh, I mean, we, we made a bunch of little five minute things and proof of concept and a little tester video and stuff like that. And that was fine. So off we go and I fly uh, to Japan day one, episode one, shoot one of the pilot um, was a scene at uh, a getamono bar in Tokyo. This is where uh, business people go to close uh, a big contract or big deal. Uh, they're open from like four in the morning till noon. You know, it's for after a night of drinking, you got to go eat something and drink some more. And uh, it's a, it, you know, it, it, business world in Japan uh, is changing very slowly, but it's a patriarchal system. Um, and so it's basically for guys to go and eat like live frogs and celebrate with snake wine and clap each other on the back and say, we did this deal. The name of the getamono bar in Tokyo that we went to, by the way, was called the Asadachi, um, which in Japanese means morning erection, which was a tribute to both its hours, but also to this powerful feeling that it was giving men, I mean, to have a sexual connotation to this place where it was a very clean, beautiful little restaurant. I mean, I just found the whole thing so peculiar. Um, and I had arrived in Tokyo the night before, and the way it works with the flights, you get to your hotel by about 8 o'clock. I slept 12 hours, 8 a.m. I'm up, or 11 hours, 7 a.m. I'm up, 8 a.m. I'm in front of the Asadachi uh, with the uh, producers and the team, and we're going to do the very first on-camera shot with me where I'm going to say a word uh, in the history of Bizarre Foods. And those days of television, because it was a long time ago, you did stand-ups. Now I really don't do stand-ups anymore. But that was the kind of thing you see all the time in old TV. Some TV shows do it now, I guess, where the host kind of walks down the street. Hey, I'm in Tokyo. I'm on, you know, mm -hmm. Smith Street. And, you know, there's – and I explain the Asadachi. I explain the Getamono Bar. And I hit the door and walk in and say, hey, follow me, right, and walk in the door. And so I do my stand-up, but as I'm waiting to do the stand-up, you know, and they're getting the camera synced, and I'm going to get some kind of, like, signal from the producer to start walking down the street and talking, I realized I was at a really crucial juncture in my life. I had a decision to make. Was I going to take the easy way out and be the obnoxious, funny TV host? Which would have been very funny. Mm -hmm. uh, and, would, and is a way that a lot of people have gone. And they've had very successful careers doing it. Do you want to go down that road or do you want to be generous and respectful and embracing of other people and cultures and what I thought more of as doing sort of the right thing and honor these people despite the name, despite the food? Because it would have been really easy because I was nervous, right? Mm -hmm. To like make fun of the, the snake and the... Right. You know, uh, frog gonads and the all the stuff that I was going to start eating once I got inside because I knew what I was going to start eating. 
I had it in all the pre-production materials. And I made a conscious decision that I was going to be I was going to be the listener that I wanted to to share their stories and not make joke turn to the camera and go get a load of the side. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. like that would have been easy, um, but it also would have been uh, wrong for me. The greatest legacy out of that and the compliment that I love the most um, and I'm lucky enough to hear it a lot as people say, you're so respectful to other people in that show. And I'm, and I, in my head, I'm like, uh, I'm so grateful to hear that. I mean, I love families that come and say, you got my kid to eat broccoli. And hmm. I love people who say, Hey, my dad and I would bond. It was the one show we bonded over. Cause the idea was to make a show that all the family members could watch together. Um, but I really, you know, when someone says to me, I'm impressed with how respectful you were of those people that you were with, dot, 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 dot. Uh, that's the greatest compliment someone can pay me because that was my intention from the get-go. Now, after four or five shows are in the can, as a production team, including the production company that was making the show at the time, um, we all then had a template and everybody liked where it was going and they liked that template. Nobody told me, be kind and respectful. You know, I got... You're starting up a TV show. You, you know, yeah, of course, want to be, yeah. to be me, and so there was no character direction. Mm -hmm. So switching gears to your new show, What's Eating America? Why did you decide to dip your toe into the political sphere now? I'll tell you. Uh, you know, after the 2016, I tried to pitch this show, by the way, for at least the last six years, and MSNBC almost took the show three years ago. Um, and four years ago, they just, they just weren't in a position as a network. They liked the idea, but they still didn't have white space on Saturday and Sunday, uh, to put a show like that in. Um, you have to remember in the U S market, you know, CNN has pr been producing their Sunday night content now for eight or nine years, I think. Um, so they have a long history of, uh, special series, limited series, uh, CNN films, CNN docs, and stuff like that. Um, MSNBC had never sort of hired an outsider who wasn't a journalist with an external production company to create a human correspondent show like mine, you know, where a cultural explorer sort of went around telling stories. They hadn't done that before. And um, when I went to them, whatever, a year and a half ago, they were very ready for it. Um, and very much want to do the show and have been incredible partners and great supporters and have not told us, I mean, they, there, there were no guardrails from them other than the typical, uh, 500 page book about, you know, what to do when you're making content for a news network. I mean, you have to, you know, every fact, every word is triple fact checked. I mean, we are, you know, it was, a it was a monstrous effort by our production team because you have me just being glib and talking and exploring. And then we have to, you know, on site and back and edit, make sure that what we're constructing is, is a, a truthful, factual story. Um, MSNBC was ready for all of that. Um, and they just love the idea for the show. And I mean, if we, it was a very speedy process this time around to pitch it, get it sold. Um, the results have been fantastic. People mm -hmm. love the show. 
uh, and I expect uh, us to be able to make another season. We're we're waiting uh, to hear whether you know you when you sign these deals to make television. In case it is successful, the networks build into the contract a lot of options for picking up additional episodes, and we're waiting to hear back about that right now. So what, I mean, you hit some pretty heavy topics, basically the heaviest topics in the political spectrum right now. Which one has you most hopeful that you're going to see change? And which one do you feel like is really at a standstill? So like immigration, it seems like it's really, that's pretty locked down in this like unable to be moved. No? Good. (laughs) Here's here's the amazing thing. And, And I'm a very, very hopeful person. I think the current global pandemic has opened up opportunities for change in places that were stuck for Mm -hmm. decades. Immigration, fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, people have tried to push immigration reform uh, for 40 40 years in this country. I mean, Republicans, Democrats, all those presidents, everyone, uh, Bush 43, I think, actually maybe came the closest, um, mm-hmm. and he couldn't do it. Um, and uh, I think in his uh, first term, right, there was a Republican Senate, and he had a supermajority, right? So uh, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's it, we, a lot of people tried to attack this and get something done. But look at what's happening right now with this. I'll just take a a quick snapshot of the food system. There are undocumented workers everywhere throughout every uh, business genre that we have. But in the food system, they make up a huge percentage of them. And right now, those are the people who do not have health insurance. They're the most vulnerable people. They will continue to show up to work because they're desperate for that paycheck, even if it kills them. They have a, a work ethic and a desire to be of service to their families like nothing I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. These are, I mean, I mean, some of the characters that we met, that woman who's come up on a, a, a visa to Maryland to pick crabs for 26, 27 years, put three kids through college, separating herself from her husband for eight months, six months, at a, eight months at a time. I, I mean, it just boggles your mind. I, I, I can't even imagine that kind of sacrifice. I'm not capable mm-hmm. of that kind of sacrifice. So you have these incredible people like that. Now... This virus is going to start to affect. I just heard someone the other day talking about the fact that they are removing ice from because a lot of ice stuff had been going into like hospitals and clinics and stuff, and they've been keeping an eye on that kind of thing. Um, and now they're not because they're re- realize it's a public health thing. So, will we go back to having ice monitor that? I don't know. Are these issues that are popping up just with the ones around food and who's transporting it, harvesting it, packing it? you know, pulling fish out of the water, cutting meat in factories, processing chicken in Arkansas. Is this pandemic going to be the thing that makes everyone realize that underneath it all, we are one group of people? Uh, Maybe at the end of this all, we'll realize that immigration reform is something that's necessary and that um, people coming up from Central America, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, Salvador, Mexico, et cetera, looking for jobs who are, by the way, paying taxes and helping to keep our roads and schools open and stuff like that, um, are of service to our country and are doing nothing to harm us. They're only helping us. If, if we took undocumented immigrants, for example, out of our food system, our food system would cease to exist. Right. Completely. 
So, and, and right now that's another benefit, right? I mean, I'd say benefit, but you know, here's the thing. We need those people. So maybe in a year from now, when someone brings up the recent history, we'll have a path to citizenship for all those folks. We will have an amnesty program for all those people here. We will be able to uh, let all the dreamers continue to have their dreams. I mean, maybe through all this, uh, things are uh, much, uh, are easier because people have gone through a traumatic experience that they can relate to. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but just in regard to the pandemic, I saw that what it is, so saverestaurants.co is something that you are vocal about right now. What is the, what's going to happen with restaurant workers and what, what can be done? Well, I, I encourage, I encourage everyone who is in the food industry, no matter what you do, uh, to go to www.saverestaurants.co if you're not in the food industry and you're on Twitter, please follow at INDP restaurants at INDP restaurants um, and, and help fight to keep your neighborhood restaurants intact. Uh, the Independent Restaurants Coalition is something I'm a founding member of. We have a board, we have an executive director, we've hired lobbyists, we have PR groups. We are trying to mobilize all the different food groups in the United States, all the different stakeholders. Um, you know, we're we're supported by the Beard Foundation. I mean, we have a we have a lot of the right people on on our on our group, but we need everyone um, because if we speak up with one unified voice, we will have a lot of say in what happens in America. Uh, and the reason that we should have a lot of say in what happens in our reconstruction phase is that currently, uh, you know, there's 15 million people in the restaurant business. We are responsible for a trillion dollars. Uh, 4% of GDP flows through food. Every dollar spent in the restaurant means $2 spent in the community. Uh, that's just the way the economics and the math work. Um, we are the largest employer of returning citizens from jails and institutions, of single moms, of uh, older folks looking for uh, a little extra money, young people's first jobs. All of that is what the restaurant business is all about. Plus, we feed our community and we pay 20% of taxes, as opposed to some of these big giant-sized corporations that you read about. And I'm talking about the biggest companies in the world, you know, if we're going to start bailing out airlines and oil industry and car company, all this kind of stuff, um, who some of whom pay almost no taxes, um, you're looking at a trillion dollar industry that throws 20%, that's $200 billion back into the economy. I mean, it's just plus $2 for every $1. It's insane. And we do it through food. Well, on that note, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the thank time. You. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Daily Saint podcast. I'm the founder of the Daily Saint and your host, Michaela Conley. Please be sure to tune in next time for more conversation about life's big questions. In the meantime, stay safe, keep your distance, wash your hands, and be well.